0: Welcome to the Imago Day Community Podcast. Well, happy birthday, Imago Day. Yeah, we made it, 21. We're going to Vegas. Yeah, we're old enough. Um, <clears throat> God has been very faithful. And uh, it's crazy thinking back 21 years ago, we met in our living room and God has taken us through so many stages of the journey. We've uh, also been able <clears throat> to plant uh, 17 churches in that 21 years, and yeah, God, is, God has been really good. One of the, uh, I totally forgot what I was gonna say there. Oh, we want to welcome the live stream, and so let's give them a big welcome wherever they are. I don't even know where the cameras are. we there's just like, wave to the? Camera. They're hidden cameras. That's the fun part. Yeah, they're under the pew, and no, they're not under the pew. What in the world did I just say? Okay, um, baptisms. As you heard, if you are interested in being baptized, we're having the service next week. There's a virtual baptism class on Zoom this Wednesday. We would love to have you join um, if you're interested in being baptized as well. Today is the last week to sign up for the leadership class that I'm teaching. It's today at four. And so if you want to sign up, we have last week's class recorded. Uh, There's uh, about 50 people in the class. We'd love to have you join. And so you could sign up, Imago PDX backslash leadership, get the Zoom link, join us at four. That would be great. Uh, As well, just a nod to the Common Good Conference. For those of you who are trying to make sense of your work and life and how all of that fits with faith, that is a great conference and I would encourage you, if you have a little space that Saturday, to jump in uh, with some great people who are thinking deeply about faith and work and how that all ties together. On November 14th, we are gonna go to one service at 10 a.m. And the reason for that is because uh, with this building, we can seat 1,000 people. With the numbers that are coming between the two services, we really can safely distance in one service. We know that people are slowly coming back and um, it is also making it hard recruiting volunteers. And so on the 14th, we're gonna have one service at 10 a.m. We're splitting the distance, right? So if you come at the nine, you'll be early and we'll put you to work. If you come at the eleven, you'll be late. And and that's fine because a lot of people at Imago come late, but we would love to see you come at the 10. One of the things that we hope to do is really intentionalize the post-service kind of hangout time around coffee and food in the gym, and so it's an opportunity for us to, as we kind of relaunch the church post-pandemic to spend more time together in a community post-church. So that's November 14th at 10 a.m. All right, we are going to be looking at um, the wilderness today. So. What in the world is the wilderness? When we started a series on the life of David and have been looking at how God uses the life of David very much as not as a perfect life or a life that is a moral example, but David's life really is a mirror that we get to look at And it reflects, like this is what a very normal human life looks like that is trying to live by faith. Sometimes he's good, sometimes he's horrible. But at the end, the overarching theme is he is trying to live by faith. And as we look at David's life, oftentimes we see our own story in his story. And one of the things that is true about David's life is he spends an enormous amount of time, like an entire decade, in the wilderness, which is the last place that he anticipated himself having to go. So if you remember, a few weeks ago, we looked at the fact that at like 15, 16 years old, he is anointed to become the next king of Israel. And after that, he defeats Goliath, this great enemy of Israel, and they end up routing the Philistines, and it's this incredible victory for this young man who's not even a warrior yet. Next, he goes in and he begins to serve the king in Saul's court, both as a warrior and as someone who is in Saul's kind of inner court. But over time, what happens is the king grows more and more insecure. He knows that God has rejected him. And he becomes more and more suspicious that David may, in fact, be the one that Samuel anointed to take his place. And he goes, essentially, from being the one who is anointed, who is victorious, to despised and hunted and on the run. And essentially, this great anointing of God thus far is one that is experienced in the margins, basically on the sidelines, in the peripheral, not in the main, not in where everybody can pay attention to it, but really on the margins of life. In 1 Samuel 22, we get a picture of what life is gonna be like for David in the wilderness. Verses one and two says this. It says, David left, left Gath, and he escaped to this cave of Adullam. And the wilderness for David, where David is, it is not like our wilderness, with big firs and a, a rainforest. It is dry and barren very rocky and there are large caves where marauders and people would hide out. And so he escapes for this big cave in Adullam and when his brother and father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. I mean, that is not your dream team. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented. It sounds like a church planting core group, right? Like that's, that's who you gather. And out of this ragtag band of misfits, he has to create a community in the wilderness, he has to form an army and a a community that can withstand and survive out here in the wilderness. One of the things that I think we often don't connect to our spiritual life is geography. We are very much uh, Westerners, in that we think of our minds separate from our bodies, our souls separate from kind of our place, and yet geography very much was part of David's spiritual formation. Whether he was in the fields with sheep, in the courts with the king as musician, whether he was on the battlefield with an army as a warrior, or in the wilderness, The geography, the place where we live is not secondary. It's part of the fabric of who we are. For us, it's Portland, it's it's at this time and place in these zip codes where we travel and we do life. And for David, the wilderness will be his formation for the next 10 years or so while he's being hunted by Saul, living in rocks and caves with this band of misfits. And so you think about that story, he's anointed, he's victorious, it looks like his life is just on this sweet trajectory, and then all of a sudden he is on the run for his life. And it's one of those times where you ask yourself, God, what are you doing? How do you make sense of God's will when your life has just been turned upside down? Where everything you thought uh, was going right has all of a sudden started to go wrong. And the wilderness, what the wilderness did for David is it formed the poet, it formed the man of prayer. And so David's prayers, which we get because we're given them in the Psalms, they give us language for the journey. Like he gave us language for the journey as he prayed these wilderness prayers. And wilderness is part of our spiritual formation too. It might not be a physical experience, but it is part of our spiritual formation. I know we don't want it to be, I know we want to like find the Christian self-help book that's like how to avoid the wilderness. But when you look at God's people, he uses the wilderness in their life. Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years. David is in the wilderness for 10 years. Jesus is baptized and the spirit leads him to the wilderness. The apostle Paul becomes a Christian and goes to Damascus to the wilderness for 14 years, we, on our spiritual journey, will be in the wilderness at some time and some place. And it's that place where God takes us, where we lack the resources for life, where we learn that we are sustained by God. It's in these rocky crags where David learns to pray. It's where he develops a praying imagination. It's in the scarcity of that barren place that he learns that God is a God of abundance. For us, we may not go there physically, but but there are seasons, there are experiences, there are circumstances that are wilderness seasons for us, there are desert seasons. Those times when it feels like God has pulled away from us. Those experiences and circumstances where we're suffering or we can't sense his presence like we once did. Times when life has become very difficult and you don't understand what God is doing, those our wilderness times, and they're crucial parts of our spiritual growth. They are important parts of our formation because it's in those times that God weans us off some of our creature comforts that, that we lean into and awakens these deeper aspects of our spiritual life where he uh, and, and I know, like for me, I don't, I don't want this to be true, right? I'm like, I don't want the wilderness. I want to figure out how to be such a good Christian that God doesn't need to take me to the wilderness. Which is almost like saying, I'm going to go to the wilderness tomorrow, right? Like he's like, Oh, you need to go now. Um, We don't think we need to be awakened to deeper aspects of our spiritual life. And and then you realize, well, just try fasting for three days. And you realize, well, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The wilderness isn't that place you plan to go. It's a place you find yourself in. So it's confusing, it's disorienting, and it seems like the last place that you should have ended up. But the good news, the news I want you to hear is that God did not abandon you there. It's scary, but it is a place of grace. It's a place where God is gonna show you aspects of himself that are central to your relationship to him, central to your survival. It's a place where lifelong habits of prayer and trust are going to be formed. It's a place where some of your faith is going to die. Some of those unhealthy beliefs, those false images of God, they die in the wilderness and they need to die so that you can have a true vision of God, a true picture of grace, a true picture of faith. It's in the wilderness that we learn to rely on God in ways that we never could without the wilderness. And so God uses geography and imagination and circumstances to work out his salvation. He never wastes anything, ever. And we're fortunate because we have been given many of David's prayers in the Psalms. And and quite a few of those prayers are wilderness prayers. The Psalms in general, there's 150 of them in your Bible, right in the middle. And you you can pray these too. Some of you go, I don't know how to pray. Just pray the Psalms, just pray them one through 150. Uh, they're good ones, they're good prayers. Uh, they made it in the Bible even. None of my prayers ever made it in the Bible. So go with those ones. <clears throat> and we, it's important that we pray the Psalms because it's important that we know a, a larger vocabulary for prayer than Psalm 23, right? Or Psalm 40 because you too did a cover of it. Or we we know like these one, two, three psalms that tend to be really comforting psalms. But the psalms that we need to know are not just the psalms that make us feel good. the wilderness psalms are almost scary to read. They're like, "Uh, oh, what? Like, why would someone pray this way? So in one sense, when we read the Psalms, we're drawn to them. And in another sense, we run away from them because we welcome them, but we also dread them. And what I mean by that is the Psalms present this counter world than the one we live in. They show us a God that is in the raw, a God that is real, a God that is aware. And we live in this world of consumerism where, you know, the enemy to our life is the fact that we would go without. I was reading, there's so much fear around the breakdown of the supply chain because, like, Christmas might not happen. And I thought, well, that's. Like for us, we celebrate Advent in a way where we don't spend as much at Christmas so that we can like make it about Jesus and give money to people to build wells. So scarcity doesn't freak us out. But just that kind of sense, we live in a world where scarcity produces anxiety, right? and and so in that world of consumerism the wilderness is a despised place to avoid at all costs because in our self-sufficiency which is the goal it requires me to have access to all my stuff to have it at my disposal so that the illusion of my godlike self-sufficiency can be maintained just think about when you go camping. You don't just go camping with nothing. You go camping with way too much stuff, right? You're like, we gotta take the refrigerator and the stove and, the, and you watch these people like go camping with everything they own. And you're like, that's not really camping. You're just moving everything from your house out to the dirt. But why do we pack like that to go camping? Because the wilderness is an empty place. Like they might not have my foot massager and then I need to plug it into my generator so I can massage my feet after the hike. And I'm just kidding, I've never done that. Um, But it's that idea that if my self-sufficiency is exposed for the lie that it is, then that barren place reminds me that I don't live by bread alone, that I actually need God, that God sustains us. And so the wilderness psalms, the reason that we dread them in one sense is because they, they expose that. They're like, you're living in a false reality if you think the world you live in is the world that is true. The world that you live in is a world of illusion. The world that is true is the world that is God's world, where God is king. And so there is a pattern to these wilderness prayers. The most important thing we learn in the wilderness is is really how to talk to God, how to talk to God honestly. And Walter Brueggemann talks, he's an Old Testament theologian, he talks about these two Types of wilderness prayers that David prays. He says there are psalms of disorientation and psalms of reorientation. And so the first thing about the wilderness that you experience is that it is disorienting. For David, it meant uh, he went from anointed to war hero to hated, to on the run to wanted criminal, and then in the wilderness. Like, what happened to my life? What happened to Samuel? What happened to the anointing? Some of you have gone through periods of your life where the trajectory was so good, and then everything just seemed to fall apart, and it's very disorienting. There was about an eight-year season of my life where both um, personally with uh, my daughter. Uh, Physically, uh, I have a genetic arthritis disease that it took about eight years to diagnose. And so you're dealing with chronic pain and doctor visits and they just kinda, you think you're going crazy. And up to that point, life is going really good and all of a sudden on every front from church to uh, my daughter to my own physical life to like everything seems upside down and I'm like, my first assumption is God is mad. Like I've sinned, God's done with me. I even called like all the local pastors together and said, have I sinned against you? Have I been arrogant? Have I done something wrong? Because I just assumed that like the wilderness is a bad place to be. It's not a normal place to be. And I must have, God must be mad at me. And I want you to know that, that if you're in the wilderness, it's not necessarily because you did something wrong. It is a normal part of the spiritual life. We go there. God allows us to go there to be formed by him but it is absolutely disorienting. It's confusing, and so when we're in the wilderness, David prays psalms of disorientation, and and if you turn with me to Psalm 13, we'll see kind of a model for how we can also pray these psalms. He says this, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Give light into my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praises for he has been good to me. Now what you see in this prayer of disorientation is that David is allowed to strip back all sense of religiousness and speak really honestly to God. He gets to praise, but he doesn't start with praise. I remember being taught with prayer, how to pray, and they said you start with adoration, then confession, then thanksgiving, then supplication, which I still need to look that word up. But um, David breaks all the rules. Like if you were in a prayer group with David, you'd kind of look at him and go, gosh, when is that guy gonna shut up? Like, you're not supposed to pray like that, King David, right? (laughs) Right? And the first thing he does is he makes his case before God. He shares his complaint. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long do I have to wrestle with these thoughts? Day after day, I have sorrow in my heart. How long is my enemy gonna triumph for me? And what's beautiful about that, you can... You can hear him honestly wrestling with the wilderness, honestly wrestling with his fears and his doubt and his pain. He gets to make his case before God, which means you get to give voice to your complaint before God. God is not, God is not fragile. God is not a God that it doesn't, can't handle raw emotion. God invites you to bring your complaint to him and make your case. And the second piece, the second thing he does is he gives voice to his cry where he says, "Um, look on me and answer me, Lord. That's like his petition, Um, how long, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Day after day, he says, I have sorrow in my heart. He's he's saying to the Lord, this is my cry. My enemy's triumphing on me, my heart is broken. Uh, I, I have these fears that I'm gonna sleep in death. So he makes his case before God, he gives voice to his cry, And then comes his petition or his request. Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. So he gets to the petition, but he starts with complaint. He gives voice to cry, gets the petition. Then he remembers God's faithfulness, but I will trust. There's always a turn, but he doesn't start with praise. He gets there, he doesn't start there. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he's been good to me. And what this means is for those of you that find yourself in the wilderness, are feeling all those raw emotions and that disorientation is that you have a God that invites the real you to come and pray to the real him and to be honest, to make your case, to give voice to your cry, to make your petition, and to remember his faithfulness. The second type of wilderness prayer is the psalms of reorientation so if you look at psalm 63 it says a psalm of david when he was in the desert of judah and i want us to look at verses 1 through 11 he says you god are my god earnestly i seek you I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there, no, where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your glory and your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals but the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. So what is he doing here in these prayers of reorientation? Well, What he's doing is he's taking the wilderness, the experience that he's in, and he is reorienting himself to God through it. So there are four kind of major reorientations. The first one is he reorients himself to God by saying, I belong to God. He remembers who he is, whose he is. He says, God, You, God, are my God. He says, I am God's. And he declares God's intimate love for him. You are my God. I seek you. I long for you. The second reorientation that he makes is he declares the wilderness that this place is actually a good place to seek God. Remember, He has this inspired imagination and he uses his geography to, uh, so he looks at the barrenness of the wilderness to describe the abundance of God. He says, I thirst for you in a dry and parched land. He says, I hunger for you. He thinks about his real thirst and he, Let's that thirst drive him to God. He thinks about his real hunger and he thinks, I will praise you, I will lift up my hands, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest foods, with singing, my lips and my mouth will praise you. Uh, in a land with no water, he talks about, I will be hidden in the wings of a bird. He is allowing the geography, he's allowing this place that he's at to be a place that is used for seeking God. This is a good place. Can you picture that trial, that circumstance, that painful thing that you're going through is actually a place for seeking God? One of the reasons that Michelle's teaching this class on Wednesday night, when, when I put this uh, spiritual reflection guide together is so that we can work this stuff out, not just in a sermon, but actually, we gotta practice these things. How do we do this? Because we gotta learn to reorient our imagination, that this is a place for seeking God. The third reorientation is that God is his resource. So he looks at all that isn't there in the wilderness and he remembers where his strength and hope comes from. You are my help, you uphold me. I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. I remember you in the watches of the night. This is when they're up at night making sure nobody raids them, he hears the jackals cackling, like this is, this is an experience that he's living. And so he, rea- he, he remembers and reorients, no, God is my resource, he's my strength here. And then the fourth reorientation is he imagines the day when God will bring him through the wilderness and he rehearses that promised victory. His enemies will be destroyed, they will go down, they're given over to the sword, they're food for jackals. Like, I mean, that's kinda gnarly. Like, let's be honest, these are not like G-rated psalms. But, but he's, he's getting this lived. And so what happens, and then he finally ends in praise, rejoices in God, glories in God. Now what's fascinating is that nothing in one sense about his circumstances have changed. And in another sense, everything has changed because he has reoriented himself, the land, his situation, his enemy, to God, and in that reorientation, he transforms the experience of wilderness by framing it within the care and the love and the protection of God, which is actually truer of a reflection of reality than what his fear is saying. Right? Than what his doubt is saying, than what his, all those other voices are saying. And so that means for us, when we are invited to pray these prayers of reorientation, that we are being invited in to reorienting ourselves to God, that everything we're going through, the pain, the fear, right, the diagnosis, the doctor, the medicine, the whatever it is, gets reoriented to God and framed within his love and his care and his provision for us. And we somehow are changed by that. And so the wilderness, it teaches us Like, it strips us of all our religion and all our religiosity and our Christianity-isms. And in that disorientation and reorientation, what's happening is we're becoming more human, not less. We're becoming more alive, more God-aware, more self-aware. And God is using this wilderness time to prepare us for what's next in our lives. So when we say authentic spirituality, this is what we're talking about. Becoming more of who we were meant to be and God uses the wilderness to do that. Now, some of you may be thinking, man, I don't know that I can do this. I mean, I just, I've been taught how to pray, I even have trouble praying in my own words. Like I just don't think I can be this honest with, I don't think I'm this honest with myself, let alone be honest with God. And the reason that I believe we can do this is because Jesus did it, right? When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he's, Breathing his last breath, he prays Psalm 22, David's wilderness prayer. And he prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's fascinating, though, is that Psalm 22 isn't just that one line that Jesus prays, but the entire psalm is as David is praying, like writing out this disorientation prayer, it is actually a prophecy about the son of David who will come and suffer crucifixion so that you and I can be forgiven of our sin and come into the very presence of God and talk honestly to him. Psalm 22 continues to go on, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb, you made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you, from my mother's womb you have been my God and I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me, and they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Little did David know when he was pouring out his heart to God like a thousand years before that Jesus Christ, the son of David, would come and fulfill that that prayer would become a prophecy about the crucifixion of our Lord whose hands and feet would be pierced whose clothes would be cast lots for, who would have a crowd stare at him and shout, he saved others, why can't he save himself? And Jesus would choose David's own words on the cross as his prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, we don't have a God who helps us escape the wilderness or human suffering. We have one who entered into the depths of it, who took on all of human suffering and is with us and for us so that God could be present comfort for you in that suffering, and that that suffering would not have the final say. So that God and Jesus would welcome this kind of honest prayer and praise that is soul to soul, spirit to spirit, and he teaches us how to do it in the wilderness, right? In the wilderness. And I think one of the greatest illustrations or pictures of this raw human prayer that we're invited to pray is is the Eucharist. And so as the worship team comes, if you would take uh, the bread and the wine, the communion cups, that the God that we have was not just a God who came near, but a God who became us. Not just a God that is with us in the wilderness, but a God who took on our flesh and went into our wilderness, who took on our wilderness prayers so that he could be crucified for our sin, buried for our death, and overcome it so that the veil could be ripped in two, our tomb rolled away, the resurrection, and by the Spirit, he would raise from the dead and ascend to the Father and say, let no one fear coming into the very presence with God. And being exactly honest with him. Because I have made a way for you to come into the very holy of holies by my blood. That's why you can be honest with God. That's why you could pray these prayers of disorientation and reorientation because Jesus not only prayed them, but he lived them. And we remember that today by taking this bread, which is his body broken for you. And we eat this in remembrance of him. In the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many. And drink this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you today that you are a God who doesn't waste anything. And that you meet us in the wilderness, you change us by the wilderness, you invite us to pray with all honesty these prayers that are raw and real. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, God. I know in one sense we have all been in a collective wilderness, a global wilderness, and yet many of us are going through these wilderness seasons right now. God, would you you give freedom of your spirit so that they can pray these honest prayers, whether it's that prayers of disorientation or reorientation, that they would be the real them praying to the real you and that you would form them and transform the wilderness and them in it. That you would kill those aspects of our faith, those false images of you that we have, that they would that they would suffer and shrivel up and die in the barrenness of the wilderness, but that the real you, the aliveness of your spirit, that it would flourish, that that flame would be fanned and, God, your spirit would grow within us and that we would become more of who you have called us to be, that we would cling more to you than we ever have, and that we would let go of so many of the lesser things that we have trusted in. And so God, in this time of worship, we come to worship the one who is the son of David, who who took our sin, who took our shame, who went into our wilderness so that that God, we could come before you freely because of his sacrifice and love. Meet with us now by your spirit, I pray, in Jesus' name.